If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them up to the first letter of John. So John, 1 John, and flip over to chapter 3. That's going to be our primary text this morning. I'm going to give, I'm going to give a, a bit of an introduction to what I'm doing today. As you well know, for those of you who visit with us regularly, we always take our communion Sundays to step away from our normal exposition and normally have a devotion message or a message that prepares our minds and hearts for the table. And we're going to do that again today. That's exactly why we're in First John. But some time ago in, in early August, early to mid-August, the elders got together, and as we began to prayerfully consider our preparations for our budget, which we will do next year, uh, we had been praying about, and we had a special meeting over budget and how do we honor God in our budgeting. We decided to take some time to have a message or some messages to talk about stewardship as discipleship, about understanding that our giving is a part of our discipleship as disciples of Christ. It is not an add-on. It is not this thing that uh, we can or cannot do. It is an absolute essential part of our discipleship as Christians. And look, let's just be honest. When we start talking about money, it makes people fidgety. I don't love it myself. Because when we look at the landscape of American evangelicalism, the, the prosperity gospel preachers have totally ruined just about the concept of what it means. How do we talk in healthy terms and biblically about what it means to be givers in Christ's body. And that's an important distinction to make because the chapel is never going to ask you to come sow your seed to get your blessing, right? The chapel is never going to promise you a prayer shawl that'll bring healing to you if you just rub it together three times and click your heels and say Jehovah. The chapel is not interested in taking advantage of anyone and finances. But we are interested is in how do we honor God? How do we truly glorify God in every aspect of our lives? That may mean in our marriages. That may mean as parents. That may mean as workers. That may mean as friends. But that also means in how we give. And so this morning, I'm actually going to take us back to the foundation. What does it mean to be a giver in Christ's body? And I think John specifically gets at this in First John. Of course, you're going to find shades of it in James. You will find shades of it in Acts. You will find shades of it in 2 Corinthians. You will find shades of it in, in all the Gospels, all throughout the New Testament, the way in which the writers and the Holy Spirit connects us to what it means for us to be givers in God's body. And so that's exactly what we're going to do this morning. So this morning, I'd like for us to look at as our jumping off point for the next few minutes, 1 John chapter 3. Now, the verses we're really going to look at is verses 16 to 18, but I'm actually going to start reading in verse 11 because this is the ramp up to the context of what we're talking about. So follow with me, if you will, 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 11. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love each other. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 
We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. It's a very sobering statement. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So is the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, we come to You this morning with thanksgiving of what You have given to us, namely Jesus Christ. And so this morning as we think, what does a healthy biblical response look like? I pray that you would guide our time. I pray that your spirit would use this to deepen our roots in you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I love 1 John because it is the book of love. It it speaks to us on many different levels about what it means to love. And it takes the notion of love, which has become so elastic in our culture, and it brings it down to street level. Well, what does it mean to love? Well, at the very least, it means to have, have real love for real people that you really see in front of you, right? That, that that love has an expression, that we can't just look at someone and go, oh, I love you, like we do in the South. I've heard that before. Before I was a Christian, I heard it, Bradley, I love you, but, and anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, love has to have something real. It has to have teeth in it. It has to be able to, to sink into something. And so it's well and good for us to know like the Greek word agape, and it means grand love or sacrificial love, and, and Jesus agaped us to the point of laying down his life. That's good truth. Those are things we should know. But at the end of the day, those things have to have a ripple effect upon us, right? In other words, they have to do something in our minds and hearts. We can't experience that love and remain the same. It has a profound effect on how we live our lives. And so John is putting this purely in the framework of loving your brother or sister for that matter, And the brother or sister in this framework is usually within the realm of your community, right? Should we love people in general? Of course, for God loved the world this way that He gave His Son. So yes, there is is certainly a mandate there. But how do we love the community? And what John does here is really pretty simple. He takes this notion of love, and he, and he essentially says to you and to me, we really only know what love is once we experience it in Christ, so that the world's view of love becomes skewed, because when you take love away from who Christ is and what Christ has done, it is not the biblical, God-glorifying, deeply rooted, sacrificial love that the Bible talks about. It becomes a very uh, surface-level, cheap, easy Selfish love, and we might not even call that love. Brad, are you telling me that people who don't believe in Christ can't love? Not in the same way that people who believe in Christ can. That's exactly what I'm telling you, and I stand on that. 
because the Bible paints that out. The Bible makes it very clear. This letter alone makes that very clear. So the question that we have to ask is, if indeed that's true, what, are, what begins to be the fruit of that love? Well, treating people with justice, right? loving people well in the sense that we are attentive, we are invested. But did you notice what John says here? He could have said a million different things. But what he said was, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John is getting to an an aspect of generosity in our hearts that beloved becomes vital to how we live in community with people. Now, if I were to take purely a hermeneutical, that is interpretive stance here, you might say, well, surely he's just talking about people who clearly have a need in your midst. He is talking about that. He's also talking about in a community, how do we meet the needs of others? Is it our job within the community of Christ to meet the needs of others? Well, I would argue, biblically speaking, it absolutely is. We can't meet every need, but are we attentive enough to help people get to where they need to be? That's the fundamental question. And so any church ministry, reputable, above board, seeking to honor God church ministry, is going to have avenues for that to happen so that it doesn't take all the pressure off us as individuals to be attentive to individuals, but it does see how can we serve and how can our church serve in such a way to be ready to meet needs when they arise. What is the loving response of a church? A loving response of a church is to be ready to meet needs when they arise. And I'm talking about real needs. And every, every, anytime you open this can, the one thing we have to remember is anybody who's involved in this has to have discretion, and they have to have discernment, but they also have to have compassion. But I want us to notice here, and I'm going to build from this here in just a minute, I want us to notice what does John root this in? This primary idea of we need to, uh, loving is giving, that's what it says at the top of your note page and your bulletin. Where does John begin? John doesn't even start with, well, now that you're saved, you have this fundamental obligation where he starts with this whole paragraph. It's verse 16, by this we know love. How do we know love? That he that is Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So John begins to root generosity and giving in the cross itself. The table before us this morning laid out, the, the, the bread represents the body, the cup represents the blood. John takes the cross itself and begins to weave a doctrine and a philosophy of generosity based purely, solely, exclusively on what Christ has done for us. So that now... How do I respond to Jesus? Well, in faith, for sure, loving the brothers. What does loving the brothers look like? It looks like figuring out ways to give so that brothers and sisters in need might have. Now, several of you, I'm sure, sitting in here this morning have had people come and go in your lives that you have helped. Rachel and I have. Being attentive, being aware, being in a position to be able to help people is is a blessing from God. 
But what John, John is, is simply building on a church principle that he bore witness to. So if we were to, I'm not going to turn there now, a very familiar passage in Acts chapter 2 at the very end of that chapter when it talks about the believers devoting themselves to the prayers and the teaching of the apostles. Do you remember what else it says? And they all had everything in common and each gave so that others' needs could be met. Foundational to the church itself was a principle that this gathered body, this this group, this cluster, this cohort, whatever you want to call it, congregation, church, shares, not in some communistic, socialistic, tyrannical way, but out of, out of an, an expression of love to Jesus for what He's done, and how can we let that ripple effect ripple out in our congregations? One of the things specific to the chapel one of the ministries, maybe you don't know about this ministry that we have, is the Samaritan's Fund. We have deacons who kind of run the Samaritan's Fund. The elders, I mean, as in all things, elders have oversight. But this Samaritan's Fund, the whole design of it is for us to have money set aside in an account so that as needs arise in our congregation, we can help meet the needs of people. So part of giving, especially in the context of the chapel, is having these funds available so that someone's house burned down or someone is just, they lost their job and they still have to pay bills or someone is in need of groceries or, or someone is in need of, of, of counseling and they can't afford it but it's desperate. I mean, there's a whole list of categories that we think are vital for people to grow. Why am I telling you this? Because I want you to understand that part of giving in our church goes to ministries just like that. Because you might not be aware of the different people that the Samaritan's Fund is helping. But your gifts come in, and that's exactly what they go to do. They help to do just what this says. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? See, there's a personal level we can apply that. There's a corporate level of we then take this principle of Jesus has died and given himself. How do I then respond to that? Well, at the very least, it's given to your local community for the purposes of ministry moving forward. James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 will echo this very sentiment. If you were to look there, James is talking about faith in action. What does it look like to actually being a doer of the Word, well, at the very least, it's generosity. It's no accident that James focuses on that principle of showing how faith in action works, and at the very least, it begins with generosity towards the local community. Because if you ever look at your bulletin, you will see there are missionaries that we support. There are community ministries that we support. There are a whole number of different things. We value life at the chapel. Part of our, our giving goes to Sira. We think that human beings are sacred as created in the image of God. Part of our giving goes to created. We think that people should have access to food. Part of our giving goes to Gainesville Community Ministries because the elders have identified specific areas where our giving can ripple out to love and bless other people. And so, when, we, when, when I'm up here, I'm not just t- telling you, give your money. That's not the point. 
The point is to say this is an aspect of our own walk as Christians. It's fundamental to our own growth and how we live faithful. James connects our faithfulness specifically with giving. John connects our love specifically with giving. And so it's not taboo. It's not, you know, it's not people greedy for undue gain. It's just this reality that as Christians who have been bought and paid for by Jesus Christ's blood, that one of the responses that we have to that rescue is to open up our hearts and our resources to those in our midst. And I think as givers, it should be done very prayerfully. It should be done knowing that what we're doing is vital to our faith. I want to tell you a story. I won't mention his name because Jeffrey Messer will know exactly who I'm talking about. It's from our Keystone days. In Keystone Heights Presbyterian Church, Kathy would know this too, we had a box at the back of the sanctuary. We didn't pass plates there. You just dropped your, your check in the box. And at the end of every church service, it was customary for me to walk through the short, the very small room down the center aisle and stand at the back doors and greet people as they left. For those of you who know how much of an introvert I am, you might find that funny. One time, one Sunday morning, as I was standing there, a certain gentleman came by, and he took his check, and he folded it up, and he dropped it in the box, and he... He was bold. He looked me as the senior pastor dead in the eyes as he dropped in there and said, this is the hardest check I write every week. I mean, what he might as well have said to me, this feels like a colossal waste of money to me. And then he just kind of chuckled and went on. And in my flesh, I wanted to open the box and take his check and tear it up and say, well, then keep it because God doesn't want this. But that would have been a horrible thing for me to do. That would have been a very sinful response to a sinful action. But I'm just being transparent with you. It's what I felt like doing. But because it was awkward, I just kind of said, <laughs> and he walked on. <laughs> Even I, who thrive on awkwardness, was in an awkward spot with that one. There was no response. But as he walked on, and my kind of, my momentary anger changed to sadness, because what it did is it revealed a, a cancer in that man's heart, because that same man would later leave our church and on his way out say, I've come here for years and got nothing from this place. That was his, that was his mentality. When we start thinking about our giving being an expression of our heart and a fruit of the Spirit's work in us, beloved, I'm, I'm not making that up. On the flip side of that, I don't like going in places where it feels like it's always about money. And how much, can, can you just give a little bit more? That's not right either. I think the right thing is to let God's Word speak to us as it stands, but to, when it speaks to us, to be willing to say, look, the Word calls us to be people who give. Why? Not just because we need money, but the chapel does need money. It costs us to meet it at all. It costs us to, to pay for the things that we do. But that's not the main reason we give. We give because, as John says, Jesus has given to us out of love. And so, in love, we in turn are givers. 
When you look at Acts chapter 2, and you're talking about people selling property and giving, these are not people who are often giving out of their wealth. Some of them did. That's true. But so much of the first church, beloved, they weren't giving out of their wealth. They were giving out of their poverty. In other words, it cost them to give. But they did it not so they could get their blessing, not so that if you sow this seed, God's going to pay you back tenfold, not so that, or any other unhealthy, unbiblical, satanic reason we could think of that we get bandied about by prosperity preachers. They did it because Christ had loved them in the best, (laughs) deepest possible way. And they said, we have an opportunity to see this love extended on and on and on and on and on. And so as we we consider what it means to be a giver, we have to first understand exactly where it comes from. It comes from love, a love on God's behalf to us that God gave his son to and for us so that we might be rescued from sin and death. And then it begins to ripple out into how do we love others in our midst? Being present, yes. Giving our time. Uh, And sometimes I think my time is more valuable than my check. And maybe you feel the same way sometimes. But also giving our resources so that as we grow and as we expand and as we look to proclaiming Christ, helping brothers and sisters in need, and loving each other in practical ways at the very end of the day that has to be in our giving. And in case I haven't made this clear, I want to say this one more time. This is not an add-on, right? This is not, I'm a faithful Christian and I give sometimes. That would be a wrong mindset to take. If we're going to say I'm faithful as a believer in Christ, it means that I'm a giver. Now, what I'm not telling you is how much you have to give. That's not, my, that's not my place. That's between you and the Holy Spirit to work that out. But I'm saying, in some sense, regular giving to your local church is an aspect of your faith that cannot be avoided and should not be overlooked. Pastor, there are seasons where I barely have two nickels to rub together. Brother or sister, trust me. Rachel and I have been there too. I'm not trying to place undue guilt on anybody. I'm trying to help us understand that God has been faithful my whole life. And sometimes that faithfulness didn't look the way I wanted it to. But I don't deny his faithfulness, and we cannot either. And so part of living in community with one another is faithfulness in this area with what we've been given, right? Because all that we have is given by God. That is the consistent message of the New Testament. Jesus asked Pilate, what do you have that was not first given you from above? I put the question to us, what do we have that was not first given us from above? And I have no idea what's coming down the pike in these latter days, none. But I know the church is going to need to come together like never before and love each other in practical ways like our forebears had to in certain seasons because the days are evil. And so one of the ways we do that, pray for each other, live in community with each other, support each other, have Bible studies with each other, maybe buy a sack of groceries for somebody. 
part of it is a consistent mindset of giving to the church. Because the way that Paul would talk about it in 2 Corinthians, if you've been blessed by the ministries of the church, he'd also mention this in the pastoral epistles. Been blessed by the ministries of the church, it is meet and right that you would give to those ministries. When you had the widows, the widows union guild that they took care of in the early church, how do you think they did that? They had collections. They had reserves, not reservoirs, reserves of of money to be able to meet the needs of those widows. And so this morning, as we think through what it means to be a giver, well, it first and foremost means that we are lovers, that we are lovers of God, and that we love each other enough to give. And in and, and this way, you know, what you're, you know what giving to your local church really does for you? It eliminates the need for you to have to think long and hard about every check you write. The chapel is transparent. Every January, we distribute our budget say, this is how we're using the money that God has given us. You can see exactly where those monies go, and it gives you an opportunity to give in ways that are going to ripple out to other people. Perhaps we could have a testimony from time to time, maybe anonymously, of people who've been helped by the Samaritan's Fund so you could see what the elders get to see about the many lives that have been affected because we have the money to give. Or the missionaries, we get to love and support and buy tickets, plane tickets home and and make sure they can get to those training sessions that they need because of the money that you give. Beloved, it's a beautiful thing. As much as trusting in Christ is vital to our faith, being a faithful giver is vital to our faith. And don't let anyone ever tell you it's different. It's easy to shy away from it because of what's been done to it in the broader evangelical culture. Chapel, let's press in. Just like we're taking back the word charismatic, and so that's our word, a beautiful, rich, beautiful word of gifts from God, We're going to take back the notion of giving and say, giving is a beautiful thing. And these gifts that we give to the church are are used in ways that help press the message of the gospel forward and help lives be changed. That we're no longer going to kowtow to the, the appearance of these things because people have corrupted them. No, 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 no. We're putting these things back in the spotlight under the authority of Christ where they belong and say, the gifts of grace are beautiful when they're used rightly. Giving and stewardship is beautiful when it's done rightly. And the church of God flourishes because of both of those things. Now, what is the thing that connects those? If we bring those together, they come under the cross of Jesus Christ, that he gave his body and shed his blood. And these are fitting responses to that. So this morning... My initial challenge on stewardship as we look at First John is to be reminded if anyone has the world's goods, that part of using them and the avenue of love is through giving. It's not, it's not horribly spiritual, is it? Very practical. And you will find that much of the New Testament is just as practical. So, Let that roll around in your head, in your mind and heart this week 
and especially as we approach the table, maybe here, I'm going to lead us in prayer here as we prepare our minds and hearts for, for the table, as we think about what it means that Christ gave, and we are called this morning, if you're in Christ, we are called to be givers.